Hi, Mark. Thanks for coming on and uh, talking to me today. I'm delighted to be here, Jake. Thanks. So you've made substantial contributions to social and personal psych or personality psychology. Uh, I, I became familiar with your work, with your book, The Curse of the Self, which I used, well, my class used as a textbook um, for, for a class that I took recently. And I, I thought the I, I, I thought the book was really interesting. I think to lay the groundwork for, I, I guess, this conversation, could we first just define what you mean by the self? Because I think that that may be an important starting point because I think there there's, there might be various different ways people think about that. So I think we can get that straight. <laughs> That's a great first question. Okay. Because uh, somebody did a survey of the use of the word self in psychological writings and found that it's been used in 11 completely different ways to yeah, mean different yeah. things. So that's a great question. When I think about the self, I'm just thinking about the mental apparatus, processes in the brain that allow us to think consciously about ourselves. So when we say that human beings have a self, but most other animals don't, mm -hmm. what we're really saying is that human beings can think consciously about ourselves in abstract and symbolic ways. We can think about what we're like and what we're doing, what's going to happen in the future. Most other animals can't do that. And that ability to think about ourselves, that is, having a self is one thing that creates different behaviors in human beings than you see in other animals. So it's just the ability to think about ourselves consciously. And then the, the self concept is the image that we create about ourselves, like cu coming out of that, that, um, ability to, to think and reflect. Yes. We think all kinds of things about ourselves, our self concept, are our beliefs about ourselves. Okay. Who are you? What do you yeah. like? That's your self concept. Okay. Uh, we also have a future self. You know, who do I want to become? Who am I likely to become in the future? We can think about our past selves. We can think about ourselves in a lot of dimensions and self-concepts, just the beliefs about us. Okay, cool. So I, I felt like that was worth laying down so just to, I guess, serve as a foundation for the rest of the uh, conversation. In a funny way, it seems like the self kind of sits at the essence of our psychology, but psychology of the self seems like it, it may be a little bit of a niche topic. What took you down the road of studying the self and ending up writing this book, Curse of the Self? From my first, very first week in graduate school in 1976, back in the day, um, I was interested in how people think about it themselves because so much of our behavior and so much of our emotions are created by how we think about ourselves who we think we are, what we think we're like, what we think we're trying to do. And it simply fascinated me that this capacity for self-reflection really lies at the basis of an awful lot of human behavior. Mm -hmm. It's not always there. We do a lot of things automatically every single day. Right now, while I'm talking and these words are coming out, I'm not consciously pondering each and every word. They're just coming out. When yeah. I get in my car and drive down the road this afternoon, if I know where I'm going, I'm not thinking consciously about what I'm doing. Myself is not involved. But a lot of things that we do, we do think consciously about who we are and what we're doing. And that fascinated me because I felt like it was somewhat underlooked. Now, I got into this topic that led to the book because at the time I started studying this, I felt psychologists had overglorified the self. They were acting like we should always be thinking about ourselves. And in fact, there were theorists who say, if you're not thinking about yourself all the time, you're going to misbehave. You're going to do bad things. You got to be thinking yeah. about yourselves and you ought to be thinking about yourself positively all the time. <laughs> this is the time of the big self-esteem movement. You ought to mm -hmm. always 
be confident all the time and view yourself positively. And it became clear to me as I dug deeper into it that that's simply not true. You shouldn't be thinking about yourself all the time. Go ahead and let automatic behaviors occur. You shouldn't always be positive about yourself. Sometimes it's beneficial to recognize that you are a flawed person and make changes. So it, it occurred to me that this capacity has great benefits for human beings, the capacity to think about ourselves, but it has a whole lot of downsides as well. And that's what the book, The Curse of the Self was about. That's sort of a one-sided title. Uh, you know, the title could have been the ambivalent self or the self that yeah. has two sides or something, but it's, yeah. it's more splashy to call it the curse of the self, but it focuses on the downsides of self-reflection. Yeah. Yeah. So it, w within the book, you, you, you cover how it is both a gift and a curse and how, how it has benefits and then, and then clear cons. So th the slant that you took with the book was primarily just to, I guess, counteract the, the, the overemphasis on, on the self that, that we had in our culture at the time. I, I think that's pretty accurate. Okay. Yes. It, it's not to deny they're not positive things. The yeah. thing the thing that makes human beings so different from other animals, if you ask the question, why has no other animal created culture, civilization, science, education, healthcare, government? Why is it just us? I think yeah. the answer comes down not just to our intelligence, because we do have a fancier sort of intelligence than other animals, but it relies on this capacity to think about ourselves and to figure out what we want for the future and to make plans to be able to do that. That all requires self-reflection. And if we didn't have a self, we would be living in the state of nature, just like all the other animals out there. We wouldn't have created what you think of as human, human civilization. So th th this book was written 20 years ago. D do you still see it being the same, a similar landscape with the way that we talk about the self? Or do you think that we have a more balanced perspective than, than we did when you were encouraged to write it? I think it's much more balanced. Okay. You, you see a lot more work and it was happening even at the time I began to write this. Okay. It's not that I created a new mentality in social psychology at all. Yeah. It was already there. Um, but there's an awful lot of research about the downsides of self-reflection and how do you correct those, both in terms of how much we think about ourselves, because we all do it too much. We lie yeah. awake at night for two hours thinking about what's going to happen in two weeks. It's not doing us any good. We're just lying there, not sleeping. Uh, so we think too much, and we often think about ourselves in biased ways that interfere with our successes and our effectiveness. Um, and and that, that sort of thing's been studied a lot more than it was yeah. 40 years ago. So how does the, the self-concept we have or, the, or, or our desired self-identity that we've outlined influence the, the directions that we go in or in like, like the things that we do and the, the way that we think about them? Well, almost any time we have a goal, yeah. the origin of that goal is we look at ourselves and there's something that's not satisfactory or that could be better. So we look at our current self, we look at our current state of life, how are things going? And we think, well, this could be better. And then we project ourselves into the future. We can imagine ourselves a week, a year, 10 years, 40 years into the future, and we think about what can I do now to make my future better than it is today? So anytime we set a goal and begin to pursue that goal, to get an education, to save for retirement, to learn new skills, to get a new job, that requires self-reflection to mm -hmm. analyze how things are now and to think about what can I do to make it better? So our analysis of ourself is incredibly important anytime we make positive change in our lives. 
So there, there are a couple of schools of thought, it seems like, as far as the way that, that we outline our self-identity. There's, there's one that is, we should be very clear and deliberate and intentional, intentional about who we are, the values that we want to have, the directions that we want to go. And then there's one, there's another side that is a little bit more relaxed about it and thinks that we, we should be a little bit more natural and fluid. Like in the book, you, you cited, um, the way of Zen by Alan Watts. I think in, in that book now, again, this was written back in 1957, but he talks about how the West views ourselves more as fixed identities while the East tends to view it more as dynamic processes. What, what are the, the benefits and disadvantages of those two different perspectives for how we think about ourselves? I think they both can be incredibly beneficial when they're used at the appropriate time. So there are times when we really need to sit down and be deliberate, think about ourselves and be very conscious about what we're doing. And there's other times we ought to be completely spontaneous and go with yeah. the flow. And the unfortunate thing is none of us know when we ought to do each one and none of us know exactly how to change it anyway. So if I'm trying to be yeah. deliberate and I want to relax and go with the flow, be spontaneous, I just can't turn off my deliberate self-reflection easily yeah. um, and, and vice versa. So they both have their advantages. And that's, that's a great question. And just personally for my own life, I wish I knew the answer to it. How can yeah. I make that decision? Yeah. Uh, when to be spontaneous and, and, and when to go with the flow? Um, I think what you're talking about sort of changes in how the field views the self. I think one of them is to recognize that both of these approaches are appropriate at the right time. And we ought to sort of keep an eye on that to make sure that we're living life in the right mode at the right time. So ideally, during the day, you'd go in and out of spontaneity and automaticity, yeah. in and out of that with deliberation and self-reflection and being very conscious about things. Yeah, it seems like it's, I guess, a, a continuum that is just a constant balance and a constant dance between to figure out where, where you want to sit on it, depending on what you're doing. Absolutely. I do think that almost everybody tends to err in the direction of too much thinking about themselves rather than too little. Yeah. Um, you know, you hear people a lot say, well, I wish I could, I could turn off my brain. I wish I didn't think about and worry about this stuff and plan so much. Yeah. You rarely hear people say, I wish I would have laid awake last night and thought about myself more. I mean, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> most of us err in the direction of too much self-reflection rather than too little. So I you, you talk um, about evolution a lot in the book. Well, it, it, it sits at the root, I think, of of looking at why why we have this ability and what the benefits might be and how that that ability evolved in a time when we were only planning maybe one or two days ahead instead of weeks, months, years ahead. So do you think it, it's it's it, do you think that it's kind of an ability or I guess a, a muscle that we may just be overtaxing due to the, due to, due to the society that we have now that we're, where we're planning out so far ahead? Is, are we just over fatiguing it in many ways? I, I think that's a great, great way to describe it because you're right. During most of human evolution, when we were nomadic, we were hunters and gatherers. We didn't have houses. We didn't have property. We didn't have a future. We didn't have college degrees or jobs or retirement to look forward to. The point was just to get through today and tomorrow, not yeah. be eaten by anything, take care of our, our kids and our 
other members of our clan and find food. And if you did that successfully, that, that was a success. So they didn't plan any more than a day or two ahead ever. So you never used yourself to project into the future a week or two weeks or a year or five years and worry about all of the stuff that you and I worry about every day. So another way to say that is this mechanism evolved under circumstances that are dramatically different than they are today. And so it's kind of ill-suited for them in a way. It's turned on too much. And the mm -hmm. irony, of course, is it was the ability to think about ourselves that helped us create this civilization that now makes the ability to think about ourselves backfire so much. So I, I think you're right. There's a lot of things like that in the human body. You know, our craving for sugar. Yeah, out there on the plains yeah. of Africa during millions of years of evolution, anytime you found sugary fruits, you would eat as much of it as you could because you didn't know when the next one's coming. You can't do yeah. that today because there's convenience stores in every corner and you could be eating little Debbie cakes, you know, everywhere you go. <laughs> that's why that's why we all, a lot of us have weight problems. Yeah. So we live in an environment so different than the one in which we evolved. Uh, sometimes our system isn't suited for it. You're absolutely right. Are, are there many theories for dealing with this, this weird tension that we have where our biology evolved for civilizations of scarcity or um, I, I guess just um, in environments of scarcity while now we're living in environments of abundance or are, are, are there very, are, are there very many theories for figuring out how to cut out all of the noise or not all of the noise but a lot of the noise to focus on the things that are more important so we can have so we can be a little bit less fragmented and have and cut down on how many different conflicting thoughts and desires we have flying around all the time uh, people have suggested sort of two different not incompatible necessarily, but two different ways to think about how can we live today in a way that's more congruent with the way that our bodies and brains are designed. Yeah. Uh, one is to sort of restructure your life in a way yeah. that more yeah. closely mimics the conditions under which evolution occurred. Now, no one, none of us want to go just live out on a field somewhere and live off the land. But are there things we can do? And people have suggested certain things. If we can live in more tight-knit communities, for example, most of, most of us aren't going to do that, but imagine that if you lived with the same group of 30 to 50 people your whole life, so you didn't have to worry about impressing people every day. I mean, you didn't want to upset them, but you and I meet new people all the time, and we have to impress people to get jobs and to make new friends as we move from place to place. Our ancestors didn't have to do that. They knew yeah. all of these people already, for example. So tighter-knit communities, living closer to nature's nature. Uh, being more focused on short-term than long-term goals. Can we structure our lives in a way that more mimics that? I, I personally would find that extremely difficult. I enjoy all of the amenities of modern life. I don't want to live like a Stone Age person. Uh, the, other solution, the other solution is more psychological, and that is can we learn strategies for curbing these natural inclinations we have to think too much about ourselves? And that's really, really where things like mindfulness come in. I mean, the yeah. explosion of information on mindfulness. At time, the time I wrote the book, mindfulness was just coming into vogue. And today you can't check out of a out of a grocery store without seeing magazines that are on the counter. Mindfulness. Well, yeah. what is that? That is a way to help you live more in the present moment, even with the modern civilization around you, to quiet down some of those self-thoughts, to not think about things in the future you don't need to think about. Sometimes it's fine to think about the future if you're planning and, and working on things. 
I don't know about you, but my most of my future-oriented thoughts are not really helpful. They're just yeah. anxiety-producing ruminations. So we can take a psychological approach and ask the question, how can we get people to turn down some of this internal self-chatter? Happens automatically. I mean, my brain thinks without my permission, which I really find really weird. It's my brain, so why can't I control it? But it's saying things to me and making me think about stuff that's months in the future, and I can't turn it off. Except you can learn these psychological techniques like mindfulness and other meditation techniques yeah, that, that do help you do that. And if I had to make one recommendation for sort of minimizing the curse of the self in coming generations, it would be to teach everybody how to do that psychologically. Not that yeah. everybody will go around and do it. Some people may not practice it. But yeah. I think the, the, people's lives would improve immensely if they could. everybody could learn to dial back just a little bit of that self-reflection and take the edge off of it. That, that would be helpful. Speaking of living in, in more tight-knit communities, uh, your your theory on self-esteem, sociometer theory, could, could could you explain that um a little bit and go into that? And guys, I guess what, based on that theory, what creates our, our self-esteem? Well, you know, for the first 15 years of my career, I avoided the topic of self-esteem like it was the plague. <laughs> I didn't understand because, and, and this falls into this idea that we were promoting overly positive views of ourselves. I didn't understand. I understood what self-esteem was. It has to do with how good or bad do you feel about yourself. But why should we be urging people to always feel good about themselves? What is self-esteem doing anyway? And a lot of people for a hundred years of psychology have suggested we have a need to have high self-esteem, to feel good about ourselves. And none of that made sense to me. I mean, yes, I like to feel good about myself, but why would the need be there? If, if we have a need mm -hmm. for something, it's because it must do something good for us. Mm -hmm. So I completely avoided the topic. The things I studied interfaced with self-esteem at every turn. People say, how does this relate to self-esteem? And I say, I don't know. And kind of, I don't care because I don't know what self-esteem, how it's working, what it does. Except another topic that I became interested in in the, in the mid-90s was people's need, and it really is a need, for acceptance and belonging, that we do have an evolved need to get other people to accept us, to belong to supportive groups, because again, back in the day for millions of years, we could have not have survived as a species if we weren't accepted by our group members. We didn't want to be kicked out or something would eat us out there on the African savanna. So we have a need for acceptance, acceptance and belonging. Well, as we begin to do research on people's reactions to feeling rejected, we always found that their self-esteem went down. Anytime you feel like people have ignored you, dismissed you, rejected you, avoided you, you temporarily feel a little worse about yourself. And I found that really intriguing. It made me get, begin to realize that self-esteem seemed to act like a gauge or a meter of how accepted we felt by other people. And so we named this thing the sociometer, spelled sociometer. I just thought sociometer sounded cooler, so we called it sociometer. <laughs> it does. It's a, it's a meter. It's a gauge, a psychological. We have all kinds of mon monitors and meters and gauges in the brain that judge things, you know, and help us make decisions. Um, it's a gauge that helps us judge how accepted versus rejected we are by other people. When we feel accepted, 
we feel good about ourselves. And that motivates us to continue doing whatever it is that we're doing to make us feel accepted. We're doing something that makes us acceptable to other people. When we feel bad about ourselves, that's almost always a consequence of doing something or getting feedback from other people that suggests they're rejecting us. Our self-esteem goes down. So it's not that we need to feel good or bad. We want to feel good or bad, but that's because it's linked to acceptance versus rejection. It's like the fuel gauge on a car. You know, yeah. when, you, when you fill your car up, the, the purpose is not to get the car, the fuel gauge to say full rather than empty. That's just a gauge of how much is in the tank. And I think self-esteem is like a gauge that's telling us how much interpersonal acceptance do we have. So we do pursue self-esteem, but it's not for self-esteem itself. It's yeah. because the things that get us self-esteem give us greater connections with other people. Those are not always positive connections. I can join negative antisocial groups that are doing bad things, but I'll still feel good about myself as a member of those groups, not because I'm doing bad things, but because I feel like a member of the group. So it's not always a positive thing, but self-esteem, the reason we pursue self-esteem is because it's linked to greater social acceptance. Do you think that us living in much larger communities than, than that, that meter evolved for, do, do you think that that's, that's changed the dynamic of how we get a, a sensor on how, on how we're fitting into the society or the you know, quote unquote tribe, big or small that we're a part of? Oh, that's a great question. I've never thought about it that way, but I think the answer is yes. Because if this evolved just to keep me in line, doing things that are acceptable to my other clan members, and again, these are people I would have lived with my whole life back yeah. in the day. It, it, it didn't turn on all that often. I would feel accepted by most of my clan as long as I was behaving myself. I didn't have mm -hmm. to overly impress people. I rarely felt completely rejected, but every now and then if I did something bad and the elders in the clan were unhappy with me, I'd feel bad about myself. But it, it wasn't a big deal. But we, we interact with so many people all day long, most of whom their impressions of us don't really matter. How they evaluate us has no implications for us. But we can feel bad about ourselves when a complete stranger says something nasty to us in the store. So I, I think, yes, that our self-esteem is much more obvious and salient to us on a daily basis than it would have been back during millions of years of human evolution. That's a good point. From from that perspective, yeah, you know, you, you touched on the, the self-esteem movement in psychology, and I think I think in ways it's it may have created a decent amount of baggage around the term because some of the ideas seemed a little artificial as in like I, I should just somehow like make myself feel better by saying these things about myself from from this perspective, which is a more pointed and targeted um, and I, I think more clear view of self-esteem. Do you think that this is something that we should be putting much of an emphasis on focusing on or or maybe avoiding how overactive it is given how many people we're encountering? I think we might be able to help people interpret it more correctly. Okay. That it, um, because when you feel really good about yourself or you feel really bad about yourself, I mean, that, that's a pretty potent experience for most of us. The question we need to ask ourselves is what is this really telling me? because it may not be telling me that I actually am a bad person. If I have low self-esteem, I feel bad about myself today. Well, why did I do something bad? Do I have undesirable characteristics? Well, maybe, 
But maybe you just happen to interact with somebody who didn't like you. And it's not because there's anything wrong with you at all. Now, maybe it is. Maybe maybe they didn't like me because I was despicable today. Well, that I need to figure that out. So I think we can consciously examine our feelings about ourselves and ask, what is it really telling us? Is it telling us something important about ourselves we need to change? Or is it just reflecting on the nature of our interactions with other, other people, mm. which are going to go up and down during the day? There's some people that you interact with and you feel like they liked interacting with you and they like you. And there's other people you interact with that they didn't want to give you the time of day and other people who dislike you. Well, that's just the way human life is. And if their reaction to you don't matter, then can we teach people to shake it off a little bit better? Mm. And and I've once I've sort of begun thinking about it this way 20 years ago, I've caught myself again and again feeling badly about myself for nothing that I did just because somebody was dismissive of me. Mm. And it didn't matter anyway. I, I was in a grocery store in Switzerland a number of years ago. <laughs> I tried to crack a joke with the woman behind the counter, and I don't know if it was a cultural lang difference or a language difference, but her look at me was like with complete disdain. Like, it wasn't, wasn't an off-color joke or anything. She just looked at me like I was an idiot. And I walked out of the store with my shoulders kind of hunched and stood in the street and thought, oh, my God, I, I felt really bad. And then I caught myself. And then, well, number one, you didn't do anything bad, so why are you feeling badly about yourself? And number two, it doesn't matter anyway. You're never going to see this person again. So if we can kind of catch ourselves... Now, why did I feel bad? Well, because I was rejected. She clearly conveyed every indication that I I wish you would leave and I never want to see you again. But but wasn't I didn't do anything and it didn't matter anyway. I think we can teach people to override. I, I call this the cognitive override of your natural reactions to acceptance and rejection by seeing what it really means to try to be realistic and then make decisions on that. And if it doesn't matter and you didn't do anything bad, override it and say, I forget it. I'm done. I, I think there's there's few things that will mess with your head more than like trying to land a joke and just completely bombing. Yeah. And, and <laughs> do you think do you think that leads into uh, or can make us more self conscious and lead into uh, self preoccupation? It, it can. And if you chronically tell bad jokes and people avoid you at parties and don't want to talk to you because they here he comes again and he's going to say a bunch of stupid stuff we don't want to hear, well, then you really should take that seriously and say, well, maybe I better stop telling jokes or learn how to tell jokes better or something. Uh, um, so you don't want to be preoccupied by it. You just need to look at its informational value and decide mm -hmm. what to do about it. And there's where the, that's where the self is a benefit. That part of it's not a curse. Right. I can consciously analyze other people's reactions to me and decide whether I need to make changes or it's, is it their problem and I don't have to worry about it. So much, so much in our, our culture tries to teach people not to worry about what other people think. I suspect a lot of your listeners, your parents, their parents, that don't worry about what other people think of you. Just be your own person and march to your own drummer. Don't care what other people think. That's horrible advice at the core of it. The people in our society who don't care at all what people think are the most awful, obnoxious, caustic, abrasive people. Because one reason we behave ourselves is because we want to be accepted by other people. Now, again, that can go overboard. You can be way too concerned. I think most of us are too concerned with what other people think. So I know what my parents are trying to tell me. Don't be too concerned. Don't do bad things to impress other people. But fundamentally, it's beneficial to ourselves and to other people that we don't want to do things unnecessarily yeah. that are going to damage other people's evaluations of us. 
sometimes you have to. Sometimes you have to say things that other people don't like and they get angry with you because that's it's honest and it's helpful to them. But, you know, so again, here's one of these middle of the road things. So much of the right. curse of the self is finding the middle road. You yeah. can't go too far toward being too concerned with what other people think, but you can't be completely oblivious to what other people think or you're never going to get a job and you're never going to have friends and you're not going to get a romantic partner because all of that depends on what other people think. I I think a lot of that issue, well, I'm, I'm not sure how, how much of it, but there's there's definitely a, a problem where we're, we're coming in contact with so many people that have so little context about us and like whether it be um just one of the many people that we encounter in daily life or somebody that we come across especially on the internet versus before living in smaller communities we had background on each other do you think that 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 i guess that lack of i i mean really just being trying to worry about how our actions and and behaviors are influencing the way that complete strangers think about us do, do you think that, that that's something that we can have better perspective on and and manage better in some specific way and like understanding that that they don't have context on us while still trying to still trying to account for the fact that the way that they think about us will have consequences on the way that we can live in our societies uh, absolutely no that's that's a great point that is part of the problem and i think it hit the nail on the head we evolved to be concerned about this small group of people and their impressions of us and most of the time we didn't think about it because they accepted us when when we had to think about it that probably meant we had done something bad and we had to sort of make amends for it but today we do it's almost like you meet people who don't know you very well even co-workers they don't have to be strangers, just people who don't know you very well. You, we all realize that any given interaction is a big chunk of their understanding of us. You know, if they don't know much, much, this one five-minute interaction is contributing an awful lot to their impressions of us. And mm -hmm. so it counts for a lot more than if that five-minute five interaction is in the context of living in the same group for 30 years, that five minutes doesn't matter very much. So you're absolutely right. Strangers and people who don't know us well. It's like we have to be on particular guard not to completely turn them off in that five minutes. And we can all yeah. easily do that. We can all, all do and say things and be boring and, and irritable and come across and say dumb stuff that might turn people against us. That doesn't matter much when the people know us well. It's yeah. a bigger deal if, if they're just getting to know us. So that, that's a very good point. On the, the topic of self-consciousness and self-preoccupation, I really thought the point in the book about home field disadvantage was interesting and, and choking <laughs> having a, a sports um, background growing up. I, I had, I had never heard of that term before. It was all, we, we always just assumed that you had home field advantage. So coming across that was, was very interesting. Could, do you think you could uh, touch on that idea a little bit and, and flush that out? Yes. Um, there are studies with professional sports teams showing that although usually Teams do have a home field advantage. You're familiar with the basketball court or the baseball stadium or whatever, and you've got the fans behind you. That's usually an advantage when you're playing. Where it's not an advantage is when games are on the line and championships are on the line. Because it's far worse to lose when things are tight. It's far worse to lose in front of a home yeah. crowd than in front of a 
you know, being away at a game crowd. So when things are tight and things are sliding away, players begin to think a lot more and ruminate a lot more about the possibility of a loss when they're playing at home. And that, that can be a disadvantage. Uh, I don't know which other sports it may extend to. Maybe there's more research since those original studies. Did, did you, did, looking back at that now, as somebody who played sports, can you reconstruct? Did it feel that way to you? Can you imagine there are times when it was being self-conscious in front of a home crowd was a disadvantage? I think for, I, I played basketball. So in, in the context of home games, especially if it was a big home game and you bring out a lot of students, m m there might be something to that. If, if yeah. like, like maybe high pressure free throws or something and there's, yeah. you know, uh, everybody's there versus if I'm playing somewhere 45 minutes away and like, nobody's yeah. going to know, like yes. I, I, I'm, I might get like <laughs> razzed a little bit by the away team student section, but it, it's, it's a little bit different to fall on your face in front of, I guess the people that that you see on a regular basis. So I I hadn't thought about it, but I I think especially high pressure situations, um, in, in home games in front of everybody, like I I think it it would create a cause a, like a a bit of a a stage fright that that I I hadn't I hadn't considered before because we always just assumed to like having a crowd would would be better for us, which is a, another one of the studies that that you mentioned was that people seem to perform worse i think it was a, a video game even if they had a supporting um crowd watching them so i I've, i thought that part was interesting because it's it completely counters the home field advantage theory in ways um that uh, athletes have always seemed to to believe in yes yeah um yeah and the study the study you're talking about there is the one where they went to a video arcade back when those things were really popular and they would watch somebody playing a particular game. So they knew how good they could play it. They'd stand back and watch them and the person didn't know they were being watched. And they did, then they'd come in and ask the person if they could watch and play it. And what they found is knowing that someone's watching you play a game, even a complete stranger, makes your score go down. You yeah. find this in little kids. Little kids learn tricks. They learn cartwheels. They learn how to ride their bicycle and do a trick and they can do it. Then they call their friends out or their mom and dad out to see them do it and they crash. <laughs> and what's happening is people are now thinking consciously about something yeah. that is really automatic. Mm. You know, a basketball player, you're talking about, you know, high pressure free throws. You know, a basketball player, once you learn to shoot a free throw, you aren't consciously thinking about every movement. You just can't. You don't, you don't have control over every muscle and every neuron that's going to create the arc of that ball. You just have learned to do it automatically again and again. But in the clutch situation, and you start thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to lose a game. Oh, my God, I'm gonna, i got to do this carefully. Relax, breathe, oh, keep your eye on the basket. Yeah. You're going to choke. So choking under pressure is really the bigger bigger phenomenon here, of which the home field disadvantage is one one example. I, I, I love the metaphor of, um, of the centipede. And somebody asks the centipede which like or how, which leg goes in front of the other or something, and then it it just sits there paralyzed, um, yeah. trying to think about something that should be a natural process. So people walk much more clumsily when they're observed. Let me watch yeah. you walk on this hallway. People don't it's walk. Weird. As well. It's odd. Yeah, it's yeah. weird. It's like having somebody watch you do something that you never put any thought to. So that that kind of self-preoccupation is what takes us out of you know the so-called flow state which seems to especially in in something like a sport um 
or i mean even something like like something more intellectual like maybe even an exam or a conversation like this um it seems like the outcomes are often much better when we're in that flow state instead of being preoccupied with ourselves and wrapped up in our own head is, is there a yeah, you talk about an academic situation. That's fundamentally what test anxiety is. Yeah. When you talk to students with test anxiety, the anxiety isn't the thing they talk about. Yes, they're anxious and they're nervous and they don't like that. It's the fact they talk about their mind going blank and they can't focus mm -hmm. on the test. So it's like they ought to be just spontaneously reacting to the questions, but they're talking to themselves. Oh, my God, I didn't study enough. What mom and dad are going to yeah. kill me if I fail this test. Oh, no, I'm going to fail it. And that interferes with just the spontaneity that ought to come out as you answer the questions. It, it, in so you, you you're a psychologist and you were a professor for a long time. I'm I'm in I'm in school. Uh, I think in in this world we often the emphasis is on conscious and deliberate thought, and th there's a uh, there's a lot of focus on you know thinking hard and like being being in your own head a decent amount. What do you think about the importance of intuition and decisions? I, I think it's something that we may often override if we can't specifically pinpoint and clearly explain why we think A over B. Like, is 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 intuition something that we should be focusing? Well, I guess it's kind of a lack of focusing. But is is intuition something that we should be prioritizing more when? making decisions and having a little bit more balance instead of constantly focusing on rational thought? That's a great question. The answer is probably yes, because if you think about what intuition is, some people think of it as some kind of a magical, spiritual yeah. consciousness thing. It's not. Yeah. It's automatic processing in, in the brain where you're not aware of what the processes are. And I've used examples already that we do things all day long. And your emotional reactions are very often automatic reactions to things that are going on, and you haven't consciously thought about it. You've just suddenly gotten the creeps because of this situation you're in. Um, so intuition is just automatic processing. And so we go back to the issue of when should we process things automatically and when should we do it consciously with self-reflection? And, and as I mentioned before, that's, that's a really hard decision. We can't quite yeah. control that. Western culture has denigrated intuition. Mm -hmm. So essentially, it's denigrated non-conscious thought. Um, and that's most of our thoughts and reactions are not conscious. So uh, so I think a lot of times a gut level reaction, I'm going to go with my guts, I'm going to go with my intuition, is absolutely the right thing to do. The problem is we don't know when it is the right thing and when it's the wrong thing and when should we sit down yeah. and make a big list of pros and cons about things. So think about relationships. Oh, man, I'm so attracted to this person, falling in love with this person. I might have a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, did I really, did I sit down and make a list of pros and cons? Well, not yet. I'm just having this emotional, intuitive, spontaneous reaction to this person. Now, I could go home and make a big list of pros and cons. Um, and I might decide, well, yeah, I do want to get involved with this person or not. And maybe that's beneficial. The problem is... Do I really know what the factors are that are going into going to go into my lifelong happiness with this person? I'm assuming my yeah. list of pros and cons are really the things that are going to determine my happiness. Yeah. If I'm right, then that might be beneficial, but maybe I'm not right. And maybe yeah. I don't have the right information. So the answer to your question is I think if we could be like a thermostat 
thermostat, you only want it to turn on when it really needs to change the room temperature. And yeah. a lot of us have lived in really crappy places where that didn't happen. It got too hot and too cold. I wish self-awareness was like a thermostat that was accurate, that would turn on when we needed it and turn off when we didn't need it. Mm. And that would be the ideal circumstance. And that when we, when we didn't need it, it would turn off and we'd go with intuition and automatic reactions and our gut feelings. The problem is we don't know. And the best we can do is sort of muddle through and try to think carefully about how should I make this particular decision? All the things on my list say that I ought to take this job in Miami, but oh, I don't really want to go to Miami. Well, what do I yeah. do? <laughs> I, I don't know. What do you go with? Yeah. you go with your gut or do you go with rationality? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I find that that problem, the, the problem of our ability to gather information about a specific thing, how, how limited that is, I feel like it is something that I've overlooked throughout my life. And I, and I, I didn't realize until I was learning more about some of the, like the, the Eastern uh, schools of thought on intuition and decision-making, like, for example, with the Yijing, like, I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm not sure if I even got that right, but um, the, the idea that, that on any given situation, we, we don't have the ability to gather all of the information or, or even if we did have the ability, we wouldn't have the time because the most important decisions are, are time bound. So at some point you have to leave it up to intuition as, as the final decision maker is, do you chalk up many of, of your best decisions more towards things where you kind of went with your gut, or do you think that it's generally been things that are more thought through some kind of I mean, we have this theme of balance between the two. Does it kind of depend on the circumstance for you? It would have to be the circumstance. And, okay. and personally, I can't make that judgment because there's no way for me to trust my judgment on whether that decision would oh, have been right. better or worse if I had used the other method. Say, well, right. that was a bad decision. I, I tried to do it rationally and it didn't work. Would it have been better if I had gone with my gut? Well, I don't know. Yeah. Or vice versa. So I, I don't know the answer. I All I do know is if I use the right method, a self-conscious method versus an automatic method, if I had used them correctly throughout, the decisions would have overall been better. The problem is I don't know of any way in which a human being can make that decision. Yeah. It's just to be open to all the information and you've got logical, rational considerations that you will use yourself to think about. And then you've got all kinds of gut feelings and emotions and just twinges and reservations and excitement that's very amorphous and sort of intuitive. You've got both packages of things. And I guess maybe the best thing is to sort of find some way to consider those simultaneously. They're both providing information. Um, yeah, that's, I guess that, 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 yeah. that, that may be the best thing is not to denigrate one or the other, not to solely rely on one or the other, but to realize they're providing you with different kinds of information and the conscious stuff's important, but the non-conscious stuff is too. You, you're right a bit about meditation throughout the book. Um, is, is, is that something that you found can help us, I guess, get get rid of some of that chatter so we can kind of balance both extremes without being overwhelmed with just our minds and like, how, does, does that seem to be something that can help us with this with intuitive decision making as well? I, I absolutely think so. Okay. The, the proximal reason that I got interested in writing The Curse of the Self was when I 
first learned to meditate in the mid 1990s and I realized mm -hmm. what a curse my own self was. It was that experience of learning to meditate and really becoming aware of how much this chatter and rumination and worry about the future and analysis of everything was really the thing that was making me miserable. Yeah. I, I had gone to this sort of a community center, you know, because it said, you know, stress reduction, anxiety reduction, learn to meditate. Yeah. And I was stressed out. I just had two little kids and a busy job and everything. And I, I thought, well, yeah, let me try this. But when you get into it, you really sort of learn that, well, what the meditation is undoing are a lot of the cognitive processes, thought, thought processes that created your stress and anxiety to begin with. Didn't solve the problems in my life, but it did make them more manageable because mm -hmm. I wasn't making them worse by ruminating about them. So I do think that meditation, mindfulness training, uh, there's a lot of other ways you can do it. We all do this sort of uh, spontaneously during our days. Channel surfing. People who sit all evening long, and yeah, they may watch their favorite show, but they may spend two hours just surfing from channel to channel. Well, what's that about? That yeah. is a mind-clearing exercise. Mm -hmm. Click on the channel, you make a decision of whether you want to stay or not, or you watch for two minutes, and then you move on. And that constant change of stimuli and making decisions about what show to watch sort of quiets down the mind. A lot of people use music to do it. They use reading mm -hmm. to do it. Some people use shopping to do it. Some people do it unhealthily by drinking and taking drugs, which yeah. I'm not necessarily knocking, but as a way to sort of clear yourself thoughts, that may not be the optimal thing to do. But yeah, meditation practices will help with a lot of the things we've been talking about today. There's a lot of Eastern tones, I think, throughout the book, which is one of the things that I found so, so, so interesting about it in a, a psychology class, I hadn't encountered a book that combines them in a, in a way like that, that, that I, I would use for um, a class that I'm taking. So I, I, I thought that aspect was, was really cool. Is how, how, how long have you been studying Eastern thought and how much influence has that had on your work and on this book? Well, it, again, it was the introduction to Eastern thought through that first meditation class that got okay. me interested in the curse of the self and how do you get rid of it. And so the thoughts themselves, I mean, when you say Eastern thought, people who aren't familiar with what we're talking about, it sounds like something really mushy and wishy-washy and woo-woo. Sure. And yeah. but it really um, it's the things that intrigue me are really basic psychology that we hadn't considered before. Yeah, it's how the mind works and what can you do? to get more control over it. So the basic premise of Buddhism, for example, is that, well, you know, life is suffering. Okay, yes, we all have unhappy, distressful things in life, but you're bringing it on yourself to some extent by how you're thinking about yourself and how you're thinking about and not being able to deal with and accept your suffering. So that's just psycho that's psychology. And in one sense, yeah. the, Buddha, the Buddha was a cognitive behavioral psychologist. <laughs> hey, honestly, the things that yeah. are taught in there are really psychological techniques. So, and again, there, there was some of that originally in psychology, but it's expanded. There are movements in psychology, acceptance behavior therapy, dialectical behavior therapy. Now, your mm -hmm. listeners have not heard of those things, but there are approaches to therapy that are rooted in the idea that it's going to help you if you can get control about your runaway thoughts yeah. and channel them in useful directions, which again, is, is, is just good psychology. So yeah, the impetus for the book and for a lot of this interest uh, came from exposure to Eastern thought, but it's really mainline psychology. Yeah. Uh, the term that I often use now, uh, 
when I talk about people being too self-focused and thinking too much about themselves, I, I talk about them being too egoic. Mm. They're, they're too ego related. They're egoic. So the term that I use is that we need to be more hypo egoic, hypo meaning, meaning less. So there's research literature now on hypo egoic ways of living in psychology just to turn all of this self-focus and chatter and, and self-preoccupation down. I, I, I thought it was, I, I, I thought it was interesting how, how broad the, the, I, I guess, general criticism of the self was throughout the religions in, in chapter seven on religion and the self. And I, you know, whatever you, you know, somebody might think about theology and metaphysical ideas and all of that stuff. I, I think whenever something is so heavily emphasized in basically every major religion across the board, there's, there's something to look at there. That's that probably like warrants our attention. And I, I didn't realize how much, um, some of the Western religions also talked or, or, or viewed the self as a problem. Do you think you could briefly just go over, um, I guess the, the way that, that some of the Western religions view the self and address that problem compared to the way that some of the Eastern ones do. I, I was as surprised as you when I got into this, uh, how religions in general, Eastern and Western and Aboriginal indigenous religions all do share the view that the self is a curse, that it undermines yeah. the quality of life. And you can think about that from a moral standpoint, when people do bad things, almost all of them are because of a self-focused self-interest where I am much more concerned about my outcomes and I don't care about what happens to you, but also my own, own unhappiness and my distress, my ways of looking at the world are undermining the quality of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, now, but the Eastern and Western religions have a different approach to this. Yeah. The Western religions say you, you sort of need to change yourself and become a more moral person, fashion yourself. You know, you need to follow Jesus or Muhammad or read the Torah and transform you into a better person who will deal with other people better, deal with life better and be a kinder and nicer, more moral person. So it's, it's focused on self change, even to the point of having a conversion experience where you really are transformed somehow spiritually into something else. The Eastern religions are much more psychological in a way that let's look at yourself in the big picture and realize how you fit into the world, that you're not quite as important as you thought you were. You're undermining your own life by all of these negative self thoughts. In order to get along, we all have to be more compassionate with each other. And that requires sort of lowering your own self needs to some extent. So it has a lot more with sort of transforming your way of looking at yourself and your place in the universe and your relationship with mm -hmm. other people. And meditation is often a big part of that. A belief in the oneness of everything, everything's part of one single entity is also part of that. Uh, but they all get at the same point, that your way of thinking about yourself and being so focused on yourself is a fundamental problem in your life and that you will be a better person if you can somehow do something about it. With the, the Western approach of transforming yourself through deliberate actions and adherence to moral guidelines. Is, is there any tension there between it could, could that create any form of self preoccupation? If you're constantly thinking about like, am I adhering to these guidelines in the right way? Like, is, is there a, is there a tension there? Uh, there is, but it's also in the East. <laughs> it could yeah. be, 
that that people sure. become ego involved in their own religion. Okay. And you know, you mentioned Alan Watts and Zen. There's a phrase in Zen about you stink of Zen. You know, that one means <laughs> you're so proud of yourself for being a Zen master that you know now now you're just using your ego in other ways and you're lording it over other people and, and you're not really what we wanted you to be. So yes, yeah. religion to the I mean, every human activity. Religion, right. government, science, education, healthcare, all of them, people can get too preoccupied, too ego involved, which undermines their ability to do whatever these things were designed to do, because we, we just immerse ourselves and take them too seriously. And religion is, is no different. It's a human activity that people engage in. And if they take it too seriously and become selfish about it and ego involved, and I'm completely right and you're completely wrong, the yeah. division exists between people. Yeah, it can backfire. Um, but on the, on the surface, some of those basic teachings of all religions have some good, sound psychological principles involved, as yeah. long as they don't become religious dogma. As long as they're guidelines for how you should live, then no, that they work. Well, one of the thoughts or parts that I thought was fascinating that you mentioned was the Sermon on the Mount inter interpretation. I, I hadn't heard that interpretation before, the idea that Jesus was warning against um swearing to that that you wouldn't do one thing so in in a way or like that that you wouldn't do something in the future so in a way swearing against having a fixed identity rather than swearing um rather than talking about like verbal cursing is is that is that um a has has that become a more mainstream interpretation i i've i i thought that part was fascinating I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm relying there on, on religious scholars and their okay. interpretations of what do the religious texts in every religion yeah. re really mean? What were people talking yeah. about? And there's an awful lot in the, in the New Testament where Jesus's teachings sound like he's giving advice for kind of mellowing out and not taking yourself too seriously. You know, he says, look at the flowers in the field. You know, they don't worry about the future and they, they do just fine. God takes care of them. Things yeah. are saying, you know, don't think about the future as much. And when he's saying don't swear, um, it, it wasn't cursing, apparently, from the, what the biblical scholars say. The That's swearing means I'm committing my something to self to something right now that I'm going to stick to no matter what. May not be a good way to think about things, because I may swear to something today that I realize tomorrow right. is a bad idea. So, yeah. so why don't I just go with today, do the best I can, yeah, yeah make promises, but to swear that I'm going to do this no matter what is probably short-sighted because we have all agreed to do things that we later regretted agreeing to do that they turned out not to be a good idea so yeah so just the fact that um again and that, that applies to every single religion around the world what do these religious texts really mean with the the different western approaches compared to the eastern approaches for i, I viewing the self and dealing with it and I, I think it's, it's generally assumed that that based on on those religions have come out of have um, that we've we've built our cultures on top of those and that they kind of sit at the root of our cultures leading to in the West, more indiv individualistic cultures versus in the East, more collectivist cultures. How does that influence the, um, the, the way that we form our self concepts and our identities and the role that we fill in our societies? Well, certainly the more individualist versus collectivist society is, has implications for the kind of person you want to be and for the way in which you see yourself. 
there was a belief for a while that somehow collectivist cultures were sort of less egoic because they didn't be, seem to be focused on the self. And so it kind of would seem like, well, if you're more collectivist, maybe you're going to be less selfish and uh, less ego involved in things and less defensive. Uh, that turns out really not to be true. Uh, mm. People are people. And whatever culture you're in, you're going to use sort of the norms of that culture, whether it's individualist or collectivist, to serve your own ego needs to some extent. Yeah. And so in our culture, you know, you, you feel best about yourself if you're really individualistic and you're dogmatically individualistic. In a collectivist culture, you feel better about yourself if you're dogmatically collectivist. Well, that shows you're sort of looking out for the group, but that also means then you're going to pit your group against other groups. Right. So your ego, ego hasn't gone away. You just found your identity in the group instead of your identity in yourself as a person. But these same problems arise just sort of at a different level of analysis. Is it an individual problem or a group problem? So again, this is so much, so much a part of human nature that yeah. um, it, it almost doesn't matter what culture you're in. It's going to matter, manifest differently in different saying. cultures or in different religious backgrounds. But these things that make the self a curse are part of human nature. On on the the topic of, I, I guess religion and and spirituality, I guess in the, the way that that they um, play into the self, you you touched on mysticism, and w one of the parts about that that I thought was very interesting, and that I I hadn't, it, it changed the way that I viewed um, the thinking of mystical experience because the way that I had often thought about it is like some some spiritual thing that's kind of it's like kind of disconnected to uh daily consciousness and like practical the the, the, the way that we practically would live but you mentioned that by quieting the the self through these mystical experiences that it it, it may actually just get rid of many of the distors the the distortions um in the way that we perceive reality so we might actually have like that so mystics who have had these experiences might actually have a objectively more clear perception of physical reality i i i, I found that part fascinating do you think you could expand on that a little bit well i, I was like you i didn't know anything about mysticism i always thought yeah. of it sort of like you did it was some kind of a really unusual spiritual almost paranormal experience where something happened uh, as it turns out, the people who study the psychology of mystical experiences, that, that's not the case. Mysticism, mystical experiences seem to occur when self-thought disappears entirely. If, if you and your listeners can think about what it, would it be like to go through even an hour today with absolutely no thoughts about yourself, no thoughts about who you are, what you need to do, what happened yesterday, what you're like, what other people think of you, if your self-awareness stopped entirely. All that interpretation that we place on our experiences would disappear. When we have an experience and we walk through the day, we're having the experience, but then we're saying stuff to ourselves about it. Oh, I did that well. Oh, that person doesn't like me. There's this commentary. What would the experience be like if you erased all conscious thought from the experience? That is what a mystical experience is. It's the experience of your reality with absolutely no commentary, no self-related thoughts. So and so and apparently when that happens, and I don't have any personal experience with this, but when that happens, you can imagine that your experience is going to be pretty vivid and wild and everything's going to look a little bit differently 
because you're not even separating yourself from the environment at that point. You're not thinking, yeah. well, here I am having this experience. That's why people who have mystical experiences say they felt like they were one with the universe. Well, why? Because they're not even thinking about themselves as being separate. They're not having self-thoughts. So in a sense, somebody in a mystical experience in a very odd way is having a more realistic view of the world than those of us who are thinking about because we're imposing our thoughts. It's almost like if you're watching a sports game, you're watching a football game, and you're just watching it and not really is different than watching it and having listening to the commentators commentating on it because they're going to point out things you didn't see and they're going to have reactions to whether this was a good call or a bad call. There's an extra layer of interpretation. Your experience of the game is different without hearing the commentators. Well, you're your own commentator in everyday life. What would it be like? And that's a mystical experience. I think it would be cool as heck yeah. to have that experience at least once. People become transformed when they come back. Yeah. From yeah. even a brief glimpse of the world without commentary, uh, they're often very changed, saying, oh, my God, I didn't realize that everything is part of the one thing, and I'm just a little mm. piece of it. And uh, yeah. So it, it's apparently pretty magnificent. I haven't had the experience, but yes, uh, mysticism is sort of the removal of self-awareness from an experience. Yes, thinking about watching a game without the commentary is a, is a, it's a funny way of thinking about it. It's a much more like you, you don't have that mediator like telling you what to think about everything that you're encountering. Yes. What, what, <laughs> with, uh, with mysticism, we were having this, this big wave in psychiatry of the psychedelic research. Um, that's been very interesting to watch. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with, you know, all of it that's going on. I'm, I'm mostly familiar with, um, the research that they're doing at Hopkins. Um, these, they seem to be able to, specifically, I'm, I'm most specific or most familiar with psilocybin. Um, but as far as I know, LSD seems to do the same thing. And then I, I know there's, um, studies going on with DMT and peyote and things like that. What these seem to be able to do is produce reliable and dose dependent experiences that mirror what these mystics have been explaining throughout time and across cultures. How do you see this, this research, I guess, being, being used, or, or I guess the substances being used in the future as, as a way of reliably and safety, like safely under surveillance and in the right conditions, being able to induce these kinds of experiences. And do you see that as being something that, that could have a pretty big impact on the, on the way that we're, we're perceiving, I, I guess, just the reality that, that we're living in? I don't know the answer to that, but like you, I'm really intrigued by that. You, yeah. probably, you must've read how to change your mind. Did you read the I, book? I've, I read that one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did too. It's, it's outstanding. Yeah. Um, Certainly, people come back transformed from those kinds of experiences. I'd love to go to Hopkins and register yeah. and do one of those studies just once. I mean, because people yeah. say that's all it takes sometimes. It's not like you're yeah. going to do every night, you know, for bedtime. Um, one of the questions that remains is for these psychedelic drug kinds of things, how much of the experience is nothing but the removal of self-awareness? So I'm experiencing yeah. the world and you've completely taken myself away. How much of it is that? 
and how much of it is something where the drug is actually creating experiences in the brain just you know just the way you know a lot of psychedelic kind of drug drugs mm -hmm. do so there, that yeah. question still remains is, is it is this it's it's like a mystical experience but is it or is it being helped by creating visual auditory sensory experiences from the drug itself and i'm yeah. sure the people who study this have a better answer than i do about it because I, I, I don't know what the answer to that is but clearly the people who have undergone this and particularly the ones who have undergone it for things like ptsd come yeah. back transformed it kind yeah. of quote cures them in one session so it is really intriguing it has something to do with the self absolutely mm -hmm. it's the way people see themselves the experience itself seems to be a selfless experience yeah. um it's not quite clear how all that, that that's working it's just exactly what it's doing isn't clear i i think one of the things i i think Pollan talks about this in the book um robin carr harris's research out of the imperial college of london i think um he he, he did studies on with psilocybin and long-term meditators and he's putting them both in in fmris and i think i think what they were finding was that psilocybin had a similar reduction in the default mode network to people who were meditating a lot and were experienced meditators and they'd go in the fmri and would meditate and that had the um that, that they're attributing that in large part to the i guess the characteristic um reduction in in ego of both of those groups so i i i thought that part was it was fascinating as as we're figuring out what what regions are what what regions have to do with the self and the construction of the self and absolutely i, and I think just, that's just help just to help your listeners the default mode network is the part of the brain that sort of runs with this internal chatter when you're not doing anything else. So yeah. you're just you're sitting in a waiting room somewhere and you're just thinking stuff that's irrelevant to the current situation. That's the default mode network and it's running an awful lot of the time. And it's the reduction of that that helps a lot from meditation and what you've just said also from psilocybin and some of these other substances. Yeah, if we could turn that thing down, turn down the volume on the default mode network, that would help a lot. Yeah, I, I, I think with... I, I, I think there may be some parallels with that, with that research. Oh, I mean, I mean, of course it, that, that research doesn't invo involve the self, but I think w one of the things I found interesting about this book is that you're, you're focusing on something that seems to be more of a, a root problem. And it, it seems that the, the that the psychedelics in, in, in their, in their, at least in, in the research, their efficacy across all of these various things that they're studying like death anxiety ptsd um depression addiction it, it seems like they're they're getting to a, a a root issue in a in a way that we're not able to to get to with traditional therapy so i'm i i think it or, or i i'm I, I might be wrong about that like we might be able to to touch it in a in a similar way but it seems like it, it's having a pretty profound impact on root causes that apply, apply broadly. So I'm, I'm interested to see, I guess, the, the way that that keeps developing and how that's going to be used in the future. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you, you opened chapter nine with a quote that I, I thought was fascinating from Einstein. Um, the true value of a human being can be found in the degree to which he has obtained liberation from the self. 
And I, I was very surprised to see that um, from Einstein. That's not the kind of thing I would have expected him to say. I, I think the wording of that is, is, is what was, was really interesting. Him saying the, the true value. What do you make of that line? Just in, in general, like what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I hadn't quite thought about it quite that de deeply. What, 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 what does he really mean? The yeah. idea of liberation from the self, you see that in a lot of the religious stuff, you see it in some of the psychological stuff. I've never known quite what it meant because it sounded like we're being dominated by a tyrant that we're escaping from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if he means the extent to which you are not so egoic, you're not so preoccupied, that you are likely to be a better person and do better things with your life than if you're really preoccupied and selfish and worried about yourself all of the time. That you know, I, I can see that. I think so many of the evils of society are coming out of being too egoic and selfish and self-preoccupied. And if we had a world in which all of us were less preoccupied, uh, I, I'm sure I would be a better person. I would yeah. function better and be more compassionate and feel better about myself and waste less time focusing on needless, useless things about me. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and again, and so it's not, you know, some people sort of talk about whether well, we want to become selfless. Well, that doesn't make any sense. You have to yeah. have, a, you have to be able to think about yourself. I guess liberation from the self, you know, if who knows what he, what Einstein really meant, but he doesn't necessarily mean we have to necessarily run away and never use it. I could be liberated from a tyrant and still live down the road from him and talk to him now and then, you know, Yeah. and ask him if I can, you know, borrow his horse. Um, so yeah, liberation from the self, I'm not quite sure what he meant, but I think it just means don't be as dominated by yourself, by your self-related yeah. thoughts. Do you think it's it's something like the the excellent servant, terrible master thing? Clarify as far that. as the mind. So the the, the idea that, that the, the mind and I, I think generally what people are talking about when they're when they're using that that phrase in terms of the mind is it, it sounds a lot like what you're describing with the self and the idea that it's um it's an excellent servant as in a tool that we can use but a terrible master if it, if we let it just dominate us do, do you well, think that uh, no no I, I see what you mean i think that's well okay. said <laughs> well said well mark i um i really appreciate you coming on um it's 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 been a pleasure to to dive in, into this stuff with you um i i think it's a fascinating topic so yeah th thanks a lot for um being willing to sit down, sit down and talk with me. You've raised a lot of really good questions. I've enjoyed this a lot. Thanks for having me. Thank you.